brief word on uh, Happy Father's Day <clears throat> to the men who are gathered here. Um, we don't make too much of Father's Day. Uh, typically, this is pretty standard protocol here at Redeemer, but I, I do think there's an important word here um, about regarding fathers. Fathers are, are currently, um, at least this is my opinion, and it's unscripted, so take it for what you will, but these are my very heavy and thoroughly convinced to myself two cents. Is fathers are, are being thrown under the bus at every pass. You're either an infantile dummy or you're a patriarchal oppressor, and both, on a large scale, are ridiculous. Fathers are critical to the family unit. They're, they're, God has placed you as head of your home, and don't be ashamed of it, and don't be a negligent person in it. To all those who are part of the covenant community, we address one another as father and brother. If you don't have children but you're a male in the faith. You're a father and a brother to the children that are gathered at this assembly. Which then means you do have responsibility, fatherly responsibilities, to the children of the church. To worship appropriate before the Lord. To respond to the preached word in your own life as setting forth an example. For that the young men and the young children in this church would look to the men of this assembly and see what does it look like to be a godly brother? What does it look like to be a godly father? So to fathers and brothers, you have many children here. You have many brothers here. You have the children of your own progeny in your own homes that you do. You're not an idiot. You're not called to be an idiot. You're called to be a father, a man of courage, wisdom, faith, and grace. So you should discipline yourself unto being that for your family, for your children, for your wife. So happy Father's Day. As has just been read for you in Genesis 3, you see it's recording the scene of the covenant being broken. That is, we've labored together already under the covenant of works for two weeks, and then we're going to do the covenant of grace. This morning I'm going to introduce it, and then we'll see its ratification ceremony or its points of clarification where it's rightly constituted. Uh, next week. But again, what has been recorded for you, we're we're simply skimming Genesis 3 this morning because we're going to do, as we said a few weeks ago, we're going to do a series of Genesis 1 through 11, actually. And so we'll get into the particulars of Genesis um, 3 when we get there. Um, So this morning, the point of reading Genesis 3 in the covenant series is because here is revealed to us the um, scene whereby what was set up last week or the last two weeks in the covenant of works, this is the scene whereby, as God says, what did you do? Did you eat of the tree of which I commanded you not to? This covenantally binding relationship between Adam and, Adam and God as federal head and representative of mankind. Did you eat and transgress? Did you know I said don't do this And you said, there's the sign posted. You shall not eat of this tree. And I knew it. I read the sign and I trespassed it. I I, I went right through it. I'm in the field that said, no trespassing. It's not that I'm accidentally in my neighbor's backyard. I saw the sign and I went through the sign. I went over the sign, over the fence and into the yard. I, I, I intentionally did so. It's not a sin of 
omission. I didn't realize that this was that tree. It's a sin of commission. I knew it was of this tree. I knew it was of the covenant. I knew it was of the content of which you said to me, don't do thus. And I did it. And then then the curses flow from that. And so what you read in Genesis 3 is the cursing that flows not just out of thin air. Like, you know what I'm going to decide to do because you did that? You know what? You're going to have a problem in childbearing. You know what? You're going to have a problem gardening. It's, 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 it's covenantally constructed. These curses flow from the content of the covenant. Don't do this or this will happen to you. And Adam knew not to do so, and he trespassed the covenant. The curses that are outlined, um, what was read, and we'll get to in just a few moments, just briefly, but by way of introducing them, the curses that are outlined are basically the reversal of the covenantal blessings. What the Lord blessed them with at creation, basically these forward blessings, the Lord's sanctioning of them and their marriage is now what's going to be to them the burden that is bore out in time. What was delightful and blessed is now going to be a burden and added tremendous tumult and difficulty. For instance, take marriage and childbearing. We all now, as children in the same family tree, understand that marriage, while it is a joyful occasion, as we've had to witness in the last few weeks, a couple of them, and then we have another one with uh, uh, Michael uh, and Natalie coming up, it is a joyful and yet, again, a solemn occasion. Why the solemnity? Well, because you're undertaking a covenantal relationship, one with another, before God and these witnesses. Well, what's the challenge? Well, marriage, as we now know, in the fall, is beset with difficulties. Those of us who are married, we know by experience, not by a minister standing and solemnizing our marriage and letting us know, by the way, it's going to be challenging. We now know. It's deeply challenging. Marriage, the blessing of, I need a helper. There's no one. I went through all the animals, and there's no one fit for me. I'm still lonely. Yeah, because you're not meant to be with animals. I'm going to make from you a helper for you, that the two of you would be in blessed union. And, And from henceforward, a man shall leave his father's household. And cleave to his wife. And the two will be one. And joyful, holy matrimony. But from the fall, it will now be beset with difficulty. There will be barrenness in marriage and in childbearing. There will be barrenness. There will be pain, psychological, emotional. There will be hardship. There will be the events of miscarriage. There will be abortion. Marriage and childbearing will now be beset with tremendous sin and difficulty. Joyful vocation, the blessings at the covenant initiation of, I have you in this garden theater to work and to do, to protect and to keep and to provide, will now go from joyful gardening and industry and creativity to great frustration blistering and pain. 
What did you do? Did you eat of the tree of which I commanded? You shall not eat. Your joyful vocation will now be filled with frustration and pain. Luxurious voca- or location. Adam living in a temple complex garden in a sanctuary where the Lord communes with him directly. A, a, a space teeming with life and beauty. Animals that then he saw come in and out as received the historical Adam, that he actually named the animals, as was his stewardship to exercise dominion over them. It's not like a blanket idea necessarily where there's no meaning actually in it. You shall exercise dominion over the animals. Like in case in point, you shall name them. Luxurious location of living there with these animals, the man is now banished. He is exiled into the wilderness. You see that in the, um, in the place where right at the end um, of, of chapter 3, as was read for you, um, verse 23, therefore the Lord God sent him out. And then he sets the angel with a flaming sword, guarding the way back in. Again, man's wonderful place of vocation is now an exiled wilderness experience. Finally, the reversal of the blessing of his life that Adam and Eve together would live joyfully together in union and harmony and joyful vocation. I don't know, have you ever have you worked hand in hand with a spouse and ever tried to do something challenging? Oh my goodness, me and Adrian have almost divorced several times working together on a project. One time I remember very specifically, we were hoisting up drywall in our bedroom years ago and we, neither one of us thought our marriage was going to make it. It was, it, was, it was quite a challenging circumstance. Adrienne hanging off one ladder, I'm on the other ladder. Somebody's got to run the screw gun. It was a whole thing. And um, we realized, right, again, joyful vocation. We, we experienced all the curses of the covenant, right? The marriage is now painful and angry. The joyful vocation, this is a delight. No, I'm sweating, hanging drywall. This is not delightful at all. We were not in a luxurious location. We were in our bedroom, totally torn apart to shreds. And finally, the last aspect of life under the sun post-fall or post-covenantal breaking is death. Which was not an inevitable outcome because you had life, right? That, that, that's how you live. That's how I live. Death is an inevitable outcome because there is a such thing as life. So, so you have life, well then you know every individual and every individual person will experience death. Now, again, on a spectrum of when, but it's not a question of if, it's a question of when. That was not on Adam's mind. It wasn't even in the realm of reality. He had no concept, which yet he had a forward word. If this occurs, there will be that death. But to him, what is that at this point other than don't do it or there'll be a cursing? So death, which was not an inevitable outcome of life, is now, by covenant cursing, an inescapable reality to all of us. Again, look at verse 19, just at the beginning, which is uttered nearly at every funeral as words of institution, because we all find our beginning here in the history and the origins of the world. This is the reality at a graveside burial. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. This is the comment to Adam of uh, what the Lord said to him in verse 17 of chapter 2. Um, for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. What is death as a concept? It is you will return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, 
And then these words of institution nearly of a funeral. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. But to fully understand and appreciate the gravity of the death being spoken of here, um, we need to remember something important about Adam, the man of creation, the man at creation, our federal representative. Remember, by virtue of being created in the image of God, uh, uh, go, go back, if you will, at chapter 2, and, and look down, um, if you will, at verse 7. Chapter 2, verse 7. Uh, and this is important for understanding the concept of what's being spoken to, of, to Adam here uh, in the reality of his own experience of death, of what is to come. In verse 7, then the Lord God formed the man of dust, which was just spoken. So, so Adam, the man of dust here, um, is being created. And now we find out that to dust he will return. Notice the other element in verse 7. From the ground, uh, dust from the ground, and breathe into his nostrils the breath of life. And, and look at the, the, um, the, the comment of what that actually means. The man then, at that point of the breath of life, became a living creature. In other words, at that point, Adam became an immortal being. He is a soul-filled individual. He's not simply a, a, an external exoskeleton. He's not an external just bones and, and, and simple flesh. He is a soul-filled individual. He is distinct in many ways, right? Principally from the creatures. He is an immortal being. This is important for you and I to grasp in the concept of the covenant of works and its curses. I want to urge each and every one of you that some, this, this is under a foot in, in certain evangelical quarters as well. Not here, but it is, and you'll come across it and you'll hear of it. You see, no human being ever ceases to exist. Because we might not like particular doctrines and their ends, does not give us the right to come back here at the beginning and rework it so that we can change its trajectory. No human being ever ceases to exist. And that is not what death means in verse 17 of chapter 2. The day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. That is, you shall cease to exist. That is not the comment. Neither is it here in verse 19. You return to the ground, for out of it you were taken to dust, and to dust you shall return. This concept of death is not Adam's annihilation. It is Adam's punishment. You see... When each of us, each one of us, each human being, now that is a part of the covenant curse, where death is the inescapable reality of your life, when you die physically, you either go on to eternal life principle, or you go on to eternal death in its experience, apart from God. You don't cease to exist. You go on into another dimension. In Revelation 20, John saw, and we don't have time to go there, but uh, this isn't the only text. It just comes to mind. In Revelation 20, John stands there giving revelation to the church, and he says, I saw, my own eyes, I saw it. I saw disembodied souls. I saw them there. They, They had died in this age, and they had experienced resurrection. 
They share in the first resurrection. They have died and came to life in the presence of the Lord. They were there. I saw disembodied souls. You don't cease to exist. You're a soul-filled creature made in the image of God. Therefore, what's done today does last forever. This is a part of what is told Adam. God breathed into him a life principle, a soul-filled individual. And he was to now experience death on that scale. The ultimate curse of the covenant of works is described by John, as I mentioned just a minute ago, but a different text. Revelation 21.8. I'll simply read it for you. You don't have to turn there. But think, garden revelation in everything described in between. This is what God is describing in the covenant of works. Death will be experienced. You have died because you did what I commanded you explicitly not to do. This is the result of it. More graphically, John gives us in Revelation 21, 8, he says, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, oh my goodness, the sexually immoral, you can't even almost bear to hear that comment in our modern day culture. How could there even be something wrong with promiscuity? How could there be something wrong with us exercising our, our, our energies, our animal instincts? Good grief. Listen, but as for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, there is something wrong with that. Sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars. Again, just this idea, this mark of a life apart from Christ, that, this, this life apart. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. And then you think, what, what is that? It, it, are, are there still people, you know, so backward and knuckle-dragging that they believe in this? And the answer is yes. Yes. We are soul-filled individuals. There is an outcome for the soul. And if we're accounted knuckle-draggers because of it, it is right, true, and good. But what does it mean that there is, there is a fire that burns with, with fire and sulfur? What, what is that? He finalizes it this way, just to give clarity to each one of us in this concept of fire and sulfur, a lake that burns for those who are part from Christ. This is their reality. Soul entrance into this dimension will be the actual self-reflexive experience. I will know I'm there. I will experience it. Paul says, when I, was, I, I, I know to, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And that is an actually better place. Putting it on a scale of this is good, this is even better. Which indicates you know self-reflexively your experience. You know it. You experience it. You don't cease to exist. You're self-consciously aware of your end. So John tells us what that is. Verse 8, the final comment is this. 
So, so let me back up one tiny second. Their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur. What is that? Comma, which is the second death. Second death. Again, speaking of the soul's experience. Not the first death. You die in time. It's an inevitable outcome of every external vessel here. Every bone, blood, and flesh. Death. It's the inevitable outcome. We've all experienced at different levels and different relationships and different webs. It's the inevitable outcome. But you still have an element of redemption whereby the soul's inevitable outcome is not the second death. After a physical death, you go on and then you die yet again in your final experience of self-reflexive experiencing. Is I know I'm dying a brutal death. So to be clear, all the covenant curses, that is marriage, childbearing, joyful vocation, luxurious location, actual death, physical and spiritual death, all these covenant curses that were read fell upon Adam and Eve. And then, just one more piece, through them, that is the historical Adam and the historical Eve, That is, through these two humans, created in the image of God, through them the covenant curses came unto all their progeny by natural generation. So here we find ourselves. That we belong to the family tree of the very first human beings. Just to give you a, a reference on that thought uh, that, I, that we don't have time to go to again and look at, but to give you a reference of the thought of that there was an actual historical Adam, there was an actual historical Eve, they, they merged in union, they had progeny that flowed from their vessels, is Acts 17.26. Paul, I, I believe, I can't quite recall, I think it's Paul there, I should know that, it, it's, a, it's an important text, but um, speaking of from, from one man, uh, God brought forth all men, this kind of reality that, again, to Adam's posterity, that we are members, you and I, members, one of another, and we are members of Adam in many of the same ways that you would think that branches belong to a tree. It's just as evident. Now, thinking that we find ourselves here in the covenant of works, in the place of the origins of the world, I hope you embrace that. I trust, as those gathered on this Lord's Day, that you look on these texts, not as fantastical stories or epic tales of the ancient Near East, but God-inspired inerrant text for the people of God. That it's conscience-binding to you. Not, 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 Not as I add to it and try to bring clarity to it, but the content of the text itself, for sure, most certainly, is absolutely conscience-binding to you. That it's as real as each of us standing here. And if, if, if that is where you find yourself, and I find myself, and together in these moments, we are here then describing, in this covenant of works and the origins of the world, we are describing and finding ourselves in dire need. If we're naturally generated... Sperm and egg, bring forth the next. Bring forth the next. Bring forth the next. And by natural generation of progeny, we inherit from mom and dad our sin-tainted lives. Then we are all, by virtue of being born, in need 
of redemption and salvation. One author comments this way, quote, Genesis 3 doesn't finish on quite such a gloomy note as you might imagine. Now, again, I painted quite a gloomy picture for the last few minutes, but it doesn't end there, which is the point. But if we skip it, then we won't get what comes next. But Genesis 3 doesn't finish, keyword finish, on quite such a gloomy note as you might imagine. Adam himself seems to be at least cautiously optimistic. So here's Adam. What have you done? Did you eat of which I told you explicitly? In fact, I commanded you. Don't do this. Did you do that? Can you imagine Adam's situation and appreciate that? But it's altogether not that much different than our own situation. How often the Lord comes to us. Did you do explicitly what I just told you not to do? Lest we get carried away and bag on the historical Adam. How could he have done that? But Adam, though, he, 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 he has to say, he can say nothing but, yes, I did. Although then he goes, well, it's the wife, you know, it's the woman that you gave me. But Adam himself, even in this dire situation, seems to be at least cautiously optimistic. Straight after the final curse is pronounced, the key word being there, words there, straight after the final curse is pronounced, Adam named his wife Eve, which means life giver. Because as verse 20 says, and you see that right in the text as he's quoting it, um, verse 20, uh, the end of the author's quote is, um, because as verse 20 um, says, she was the mother of all living. Interesting, isn't it? Adam's response to the curse. You now are going back to the dust, because from dust you are taken. Death is now an inevitable outcome for you. It's a question of uh, when, not if. And in that moment, and in the language of the curse that was uh, was developing right in front of him, interesting, isn't it? That Adam turned and named his wife Eve? That's staggering, if you think about it. He's just been utterly devastated. And he names his wife the mother of the living. And it's this small little um, ray of hope that is signaled to us in the text by what Adam says to Eve. That brings us to our second major covenant in our study of theological covenants. And the second covenant that I want to introduce this morning, of which is introduced and signaled to us here by Adam, even in his activity, but more so in the pronouncement of prophecy by God in verse 15 and 16, is called the covenant of grace. So we've moved from the covenant of works, the devastation of the covenant of works, the cursing now that is coming out of the covenant of works. So in time and space, 
operative in the origins of the world is the outflow and the outcomes of the covenant of works being broken. It was established, it was broken, now here we lie. And now there is this glimpse that inserts itself here. And it's simply being initially promised or initially signaled. And the next week we'll watch as it's constituted. But this theological covenant here is once again called the covenant of grace. Our first step this morning here to notice um, is the, uh, about the initial words of hope are how they accompany the announcement of Satan's demise. So if you look in verse um, 14 and 15, let's jump in there at the very beginning and, and, and see again how the initial words of hope accompany the announcement of Satan's demise. And, and this is, uh, just to be clear, what, what I've said to you so far is that the, the covenant of grace is herein being signaled. It is being announced. It is being initiated. Then we'll move forward and say, where is it constituted? And, and we'll get there next week. So we'll look at the specific elements of it. We'll look at the constitution of it. We'll look at how it's structured, and we'll look at its implementation next week. But right here, right at the fall, the breaking of the curse of the covenant of works springs forward its announcement. And that's what we're looking at now. Which is why Adam then named his wife Eve. He heard the announcement. Because you know he didn't hear it in the word, to dust you're going back. He's like, well, in that case, Eve's the mother of all that's going to be living. It's like, oh, I'm going to die. So there's some content in here in the words of God to him that he heard and he received in faith and acted. This content came to him and in faith he said, you are Eve, the mother of the living Where do you think we're going to go? We're all going to die. No, we're going to live. How so? Didn't you hear what God is going to do in the initial promise? So let's look at verse 14 and 15 just briefly. This is what Adam and Eve standing there after they explain, what did you do? Did you do what I said not to do? The answer is yes, she, me, yeah, yes. The serpent deceived the woman, and I ate. So here they stand in this situation. And the Lord directs, the Lord God directs to the serpent. And Adam and Eve are standing here, which is a part of his response in faith to name his wife Eve. Because this is the first thing that he hears. Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock. And above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go. And dust you shall eat. All the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. Now, while these words are certainly a pronouncement, as you notice there, it's it's focused in directly upon the serpent of verse 14. The Lord God said to the serpent these words. And so certainly it's a pronouncement of punishment on Satan. But we also, in this pronouncement of judgment, see an intimation or a hint 
of God's saving purposes. How so? Immediately recognizing the text, this is, this is what gives Adam courage to respond in faith. The first of this sense of an intimation of the gospel in the words of punishment to Satan. Where is the intimation or where is the, the hint at God's saving purposes? That he's going to do something. And the first aspect is simply recognized in this text. There's a temporal postponement of divine wrath. In other words, do you see in, in verse 17 uh, of chapter 2, it would have been right that Adam died physically right then and there. It would have been wholly correct. It would have been well within the bounds of justice that Adam ceased to exist. There, boom, done, over, case closed. I said no, you said yes, I was right, you were wrong, you suffered the effect right here, here and now. Just off with your head. That would have been a right and proper response, a, a, a just retribution for Adam's transgression, his trespassing, the bounds of God's law. Yet, in the text, to Satan, you, now notice, notice how we see it. Then the words of judgment is this pronouncement of mercy or this idea of future salvation, a, a work that is coming, a redemptive plan is afoot. Verse 15, notice it very carefully. I will put enmity between you and the woman. This indicates that a war and a conflict is going to break out. Wait a minute, I thought we're all going to immediately die. Think of Adam standing here, hearing this. I will put enmity between you and her and all that is with them. How quick is this going to happen? In the next second or two? No. Her offspring. Oh. We're going to live. There's an enmity. There's, there's to be a war. This word of patience, mercy, shown of God to Adam and Eve. Notice this element that, de that develops as Adam is hearing this. There is going to be a war between you and the woman. And then Adam hearing this. And between your offspring, all your cohorts, you and your guys, and her. And her guys. Her offspring. There's going to be a war. There's going to be a conflict. And it's going to be generational. You mean there's going to be a temporal postponement of divine wrath? We're not going to die here and now? Not physically. But Adam needs to respond in faith to what's being said to him. To what's being said in front of him. He shall bruise. The outcome then is listed, and the outcome is written. It is decreed. There is no variance. There is no way in which this will not occur. This is the Lord God to his people. The offspring from the woman shall crush your head, and you will bruise his heel. It is from this which faith does flow to Adam, and the hearing of the word of God. Where does faith come from? From hearing the word of God. Where is faith's activity? Adam believes the word disclosed. 
and acts decisively to name his wife the mother of the living. God has shown mercy to us. Notice the effects of the curse, though. We, we, we can't skip over them. I introduced them. Look at verse 16 as we move forward. To the woman, then, he said. So he, so he announce, makes this announcement directly in front of them to the serpent. And to the woman, then, he turns. They're standing in the garden. And here are the, the devastating effects that were read a few moments ago. We just need to once again brush over them. I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. We have a, a, a small number of, of pregnant ladies here at the church who always get fired up and excited when they read such a passage, I know, in the next seven months, nine months, wherever you're at in the timeline. I think Hillary, one month or whenever. The, so get ready. I will surely um, multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Again, we'll comment on that just briefly in a moment. Your, your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So now, now Eve hears the words of institution of the covenant. This is the outcome for your sin. The curse that is coming upon what was at once blessed. Verse 17, and to Adam he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife, and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you. Remember what I said? I commanded you. You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns, thistles shall bring. And you shall eat the plants of the field. It's all going to be by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread to the day you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken for you, Adam, our dust. And to dust you shall return. You see, although man in this moment, in hearing the curse of the covenant, is absolutely devastated for his disobedience, all that was joy to him, all the forward-looking joy and progress of obedience has now turned to devastating results of disobedience. Yet, in each of the covenant curse pronouncements, we see that God will still bless the labors of his hands. And he will do so to such a degree that human life will be sustained. Thus, here we are. The origins of the world keep moving forward. God blesses enough. He curses and he brings forth charge for disobedience. Yet, he blesses just enough that human life will be sustained. There will be a war. There will be enmity. In fact, there will be a very unique offspring who is to be born. And he does so not just simply to let them skimp and get by, but each of us know our own human experience is filled with joy still. Like you still have a child when it's born to you. The joy of that. Also, there is a culture established. Look at the common grace that is spoken. Um, it, it, so, so man will be sustained even though he will have a very hard road to walk. 
but, but notice it's not even just that, but there, there's additional elements to cultures being established. Um, if you see in chapter 4, and, and again, we'll get here as we go through Genesis, but um, there, there's a comment here. Look at verse 20, 21. Um, his brother's name was Jubal. He was the father of all those who play the lyre and the pipe. And then you go into verse 22, and you see a forger of all the instruments of bronze and iron. And then it goes through the story of the early origins, whereby you see additional elements of culture are well-established. I mean, everybody uh, enjoys the common goodness of good music, good times, family, life, abundance, hard work. So there's still a loving life and a mercy that is shown to all mankind, even in the elements of curse. Back to marriage and childbearing. As I said, in the covenant, you see there will be barrenness, there will be pain, there will be miscarriage, and there will be abortion. But there will also be children. This is the initiation of God's promise of redemption. You see, they didn't die right then. There will be children. There will be a very important child. Vocation, as you think of vocation, is again that element of the life of the covenant that now is turned to curse. In the text you just heard, there will be thorns and pests, drought and famine, toil and death. But there will also be bread to sustain the life of man. Did you see that? By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. You mean I'm going to live? Yes. You will work very hard to find that bread. But there will be bread to sustain the life of man. And there will be, as we read in multiple texts, wine to gladden his heart. You see, there will be a sustaining common grace that will temper the curse of the covenant of works upon mankind. Why will there be such a grace in establishment of cultures? Why? Because it's the proper theater for God's program of redemption to emerge. This is what's being established in his temporal withholding of immediate justice. His temporal postponement of divine wrath. He's withholding. Yes, we have fallen, and yet there is still a hand of common grace that enables Uh, work is toilsome and hard, filled with frustration and difficulty, but there's still bread that can be produced. You can still be sustained. Living with your neighbor will increasingly be more and more difficult, but there will also be community development, working in tandem together for the common good of society. Again, there is a sustaining common grace that will temper the curse covenant, or the covenant curse enabling God's program of redemption to emerge. Finally, notice also that in the text, when we think of how is that right this morning as we're looking at, how is the covenant of grace being signaled? How is it being intimated to us that God has not done with humanity yet, even though they broke the covenant that he had given them? The first is a temporal postponement of divine wrath, of which we see even in the language of the curse. And the second one, is the promise of a future restoration. Look at verse 15 in the promise of restoration. Again, it's been read for you, but once again, here is the intimation of which we'll see next week when it becomes constituted. Verse 15, 
I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This is the promise that Adam laid hold of in faith. It is this comment of future victory and restoration promised to mankind through one of Eve's children. You see, between the woman's offspring and his offspring, the cohorts of the demonic realm, those who are manifested even in time who are against the city of the people of God, Eve is going to have a son that is decisive for the entire world. You're going to have children. And you're going to have one son who is rather unique and different from all of his siblings. God is promising to Satan. That is, in this language here, you see, it is absolutely pledged and it is not able to be returned to him. It is not able to be broken. It is not able to be avoided. God is here pledging to Satan a death blow upon his head. You see it in the language. It's not he might bruise your head. It's not that he might give you a hard time. It is not that we'll see how it goes, but I'm thinking he's going to. It is covenantally strong. It is bearing upon him. It is inviolable. It is that he shall, he will bruise, that is, crush your head. That is, here God pledges, and Adam hears it and responds in faith that one of Eve's children one day will come. The woman's offspring will crush the head of the serpent, dealing him a death blow of defeat. But not only does it crush Satan, but in the next phrase, you shall bruise his heel, we learn it also comes to restore the children, the offspring, to live in the paradise God intended. This is the intimation. This is the signaling here in the words of what is called the very first gospel of the Bible. This is the intimation. This is the hint of the covenant of grace. God will bring forth another covenant son. There will be, I don't know, it will be something like a second Adam that will emerge. He will be uniquely born wherein he breaks the natural progeny. He breaks receiving a sin principle from father, mother. Oh, it's a virgin birth. Whereby he's born to a young woman named Mary. And in him we hope that he will obey the covenant of works and bring all in faith into the covenant of grace. One author concludes this way as we move towards the end of our time. The serpent crushing son of Eve is in for no picnic. When we find him millennia later sweating drops of blood in another garden, before bearing a crown of thorns as he's hanged on another tree. That's... You shall bruise his heel. We begin to see something of the horrors of the curse of Genesis 3. You see, 
suffering the curse to which all the rest of the women's seed are liable. This one particular offspring from Eve will vicariously crush the serpent's head, die in our stead, and be raised. Producing a gospel announcement. The good news that you can be forgiven. Adam hears it intimated, and so he names his wife, not we're all in big trouble. He names her Eve. We're going to be delivered. Let's pray. Father,